past resurrection day. Time for a new beginning. And um, I've just been praying and asking the Lord, what should we talk about next, God? What's, what really matters? And uh, he said, I want you to talk about the subject of unity. And not in the typical, traditional, you know, hey, everybody, can we just get along? But go a little bit deeper. And uh, so I've got some wonderful things. I've been doing some studies on the Trinity, and it's, it's pretty mind-blowing. So I'm really going to enjoy it. But first, I want to start with a little bit of fun. What we have here is better together, and these are? Peanut butter and jelly. Wow, is there anything else on the planet that goes better together than peanut butter and jelly? Anybody else have something? Like, what's a common two-thing together food that you love? Macaroni and cheese, yeah. Vanilla ice cream and chocolate sauce, yeah. Peanut butter and banana. Yes, sir. Steak and A1. Wow, good, Karen. Spinach and more spinach. Yes, I love it. I love it, yeah. Pizza and beer. Pizza and beer. Cool, what else? Yes, over here. Say it again. Chicken strips and fries. I agree. Wow. How about something old-fashioned like celery and cheese Whiz? I love that. Yeah. Yeah, but celery and peanut butter. Amen. I love that. Um, how about... Say again. Cornbread and milk. Cornbread and milk. Hmm. You're from the South, girl. <laughs> Liver and onions. Everybody's favorite. Okay, here's... All right. So you get the idea. Uh, the most common pairing has to be salt and pepper, right? I mean, you used to kind of say it all in one word, salt and pepper, because it's been around for so long. In fact, we're uh, doing this sort of, you know, home delivery, food preparation things that you get every now and then. And um, it's not every week, it's every other week. We do like three nights a week, but often enough to kind of give us a break from cooking our own stuff. Anyway, the recipe on every turn Begins and ends with salt and pepper to taste. Salt and pepper to taste. Step 12. Salt and pepper to taste. By the time you're done, you might as well open the jar and just pour it in, you know? <laughs> Thinking, these guys are crazy, but it really tastes good. Um, there's a Reese's thing, too. What's that one about? Peanut butter, Peanut butter and chocolate. Yeah. Does anybody have what they think might be the weirdest pairing that you actually eat of everybody else in the room? Yes, sir. Dana. Okay, say that, say that again. I dare you to try it, come back talk to me. Toast a piece of bread. Toast a piece of bread. Mustard. And sugar. You win, hands down. I'm not asking for any more. That's a good one. Wow. So anyway, PB&J is like the Holy Trinity. Oh, wait a minute. That's only two things. Bread. I looked up the history of the peanut butter sandwich, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and you would be fascinated. It was invented. In fact, the sandwich in general was invented in the 1700s by a man named John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, England. Yeah, he was on a, this 24-hour gambling binge, and he didn't want to stop playing. He wanted to be able to eat with one hand and play cards with the other, so he told the servant, go get a piece of meat, put it between two pieces of bread and give it to me. So he'd keep playing 24 hours straight, okay? That was like the first sandwich. He gets credited for that. But that's not 
the PB&J. Later on, around uh, early 1900s, a man by the name of Otto Frederick Rohwetter of Germany invented the bread slicer. Sliced bread has not been around for a long time, early 1900s, and it changed the world. And about the same time, a man by the name of Paul Welch, recognize that? Welch's Concord Grape Jelly, secured the patent for pureeing grapes and turning them into jelly, and he developed and advertised this new product. It rhymes with marmalade. It was called Grapeolade. Okay, so that was like the first jelly. Became very popular in World War I because American troops needed to be able to eat on the run and on the road, and so bread and jelly became like the, the most basic food item in World War I. And then when they came home after the war, they began to spread it across the country with their families. So that was just the grape and the bread. But about the same time, a guy by the name of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, same as the cereal, patented the process to make peanut butter creamy. It used to be just ground up paste, you know? So once everybody discovered creamy peanut butter, they introduced it to St. Louis World's Fair, became the most popular snack that year. Then about the same time, the first peanut butter and jelly combination recipe was written into a recipe book. Can you imagine eating a recipe for peanut butter and jelly? But they did it. It appeared in the Boston, it was the Boston Cooking School magazine of culinary science and domestic economics, written by Julia Davis Chandler. And then by the time the Great Depression rolled around, when no one had much money, peanut butter and jelly spread like wildfire because it was protein uh, rich, nutritious, and inexpensive. And then it finally landed on the US military rations menu during World War II. So that's where peanut butter and jelly came from. It was like, boy, people have been working on our taste buds for a long time in a lot of different ways. You know, sort of, how can we appeal to people to buy our products? Let's make it taste good and let's, let's blend some things that don't normally go together. So our taste buds can be, you know, pretty good motivation for finding out what is better together. But when it comes to people, you can't necessarily go by taste because we all have different tastes in what we're after in relationships, right? So I, I began to ask the question, what is, um, what is the origin of this idea of unity? Who, who came up with it first? I've actually got a, a short video that uh, a lot of people claim is the origin of unity among mankind, and it goes like this. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. How many of you remember that commercial? Crazy, huh? 
I mean, it was so inspiring. I mean, if you're a hippie, you're going, oh, baby, I think we nailed it. This is going to bring <laughs> harmony around the entire globe, you know. But we learned that's really not the case. Humans, apart from God, can be sincere, we can be entertaining, but we really don't have the power to create that kind of worldwide unity. So some people went a little further back and they said, maybe it was Martin Luther King when he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Wow, powerful words absolutely inspiring. That's the way I think God designed us. Then other people go further back and they, they look at Abraham Lincoln who said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Powerful, biblical. But that wasn't the origin of this concept of unity. So some people go further back, and I'll do this one. Watch. Nice. Thomas Jefferson. The Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Again, a lot of these are rooted in the nature of God and biblical truths and concepts and you could go a little further back and even start looking at some Bible stories where, you know, Moses is commanding the people of Israel to worship one God and to, to gather around the worship of their one God and to be one people under God. But it really began with the nature of God himself in, in the Holy Trinity. And you and I have heard a couple of our friends come and share just a little nugget on that concept that, that God actually is a community within himself, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actually a neighborhood who are in perfect unity and in perfect harmony. And in the words of the great theologian Penelope Whitmore, um, I was at her house the other day, and again, out of the blue, she goes, Papa, this might hurt your brain. <laughs> But here it goes. He said, you see, this is who God is. Jesus' feet are on the earth, and he's standing like this. And God's feet are in heaven, and they share the same head. Oh, wow. Kind of freaky, but that's pretty good. So I'm thinking, okay, now she didn't say anything about the Holy Spirit, but I imagine the Holy Spirit be sticking his feet out to the side and sharing the same head or something like that. Something, it's just wild. So this concept of, of the Trinity is clearly a, a pretty deep and profound truth that we will never fully grasp here in this lifetime. But this origin of togetherness, this origin of the idea of unity had to begin with God himself. And when, when we read the Bible, we find that God in Genesis created Adam and Eve in his own image. So God, who is one, said to Adam and Eve, I want you two to become one. They're of the same creator, the same father, so they even have a similar bloodline, you might say, so they are kind of family to begin with. So he said to the couple, you guys become one. And then even after the fall, he said to Abraham, Abraham, you will be the father of many nations, but they will all be the family of God. So still, Abraham had this bloodline of unity. So biologically, this concept was being passed down. Even after Abraham, when... Moses wrote into the law of God. 
My people shall be one people, and they shall worship the one true God. But in the New Testament, something changed. Even though bloodlines and biological resemblance and even tribes and clans that grew into millions, the people of Israel, didn't quite capture the concept God wanted to deliver. Because when Jesus came, after his death and resurrection, what did he declare? In him, in Christ, there is no race, there is no gender, there are no slaves, there are no free, there are no rich, there are no poor. Every race, every creed, every color on the planet Earth, if they follow me, can become one. That's pretty wild. When you think about how effective the cross is at gathering and unifying such different people. I mean, again, we look at this room and go, wow, different backgrounds, different histories, different education, economics, everything, size, shape, color. And yet in Christ, we actually are one. So I thought, okay, I do get that part, Lord. That's kind of what I've always looked at. But I want to look at this Trinity concept a little bit further. So let's go to that spot. Yeah, here's the part I meant to share right before the last thing about the New Testament. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. It kind of sounds like Penelope's picture, you know, <laughs> sharing the same brains, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So if the concept of unity and oneness begins in the Trinity, in the Godhead himself, ah, the Trinity can sound complicated, but it's really not. If you see things from God's point of view, here's what things look like. Remember, God lives in a place where there's no time. There's no like past, present, future. There's no clock. There's no weeks, no months, no year. There's no annual celebrations or anything. It's always now, okay? There's no time. In God's presence, there is no actual, there is space, but it's not like measurable geographic distances and depths of space. It's all present within his reach all at the same time. That's a wild concept. There's no time, there's no space, and there's no limits. He's not bound by anything. His capabilities are endless. And so if we think about unity and we think about where it begins, well, God has shared some of those, those images in us. When he said, I created man in my own image, he said, you, you get to have some of these characteristics. You can't actually comprehend the idea of boundless time. You can't experience it, but I think you can imagine it a timeline that has no beginning and no end, or a clock that doesn't exist where everything is in the now. I can kind of get that. And he says, but you have a little bit of that in you as well. So you can understand this idea of limitless space where everything and everyone really is together. And you can understand limitless power because I, you've experienced my power in your life. And so you've got a little bit of a taste of the, I'd like to teach the world to sing. That's where I think people get those kinds of songs because God places those things in us. In Latin, it's called imago Deo, the image of God. And so he's saying, it's really not that complicated. You have a taste, you even have a longing, you even have a desire. Why else would 
The Koch Company, Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln, and Thomas Jefferson keep writing about this idea over and over and over again because God planted it in the hearts of men. Here's one of the main evidences for this idea of Trinity. Trinity is not in the Bible. You can't find it anywhere, but the concept clearly is. It begins in the first example would be in Genesis 1.26. When God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Isn't it fascinating how many things come right out of Genesis 1.26? So many life principles that we've taught just from this single verse. But this time we're going to talk about the fact that God is talking to himself, kind of-ish. He's talking about us and our. Uh, there's a gal by the name of Beth Barone. She's a Bible teacher and a wonderful woman of God. And um, she used to suffer from schizophrenia. In fact, she had multiple personalities. One of the genuine, really crazy people in the world until Jesus delivered her. And, and when she read this verse, she goes, I totally get that. I get that us and our thing because there were like 11 of me back in the day. It's kind of funny. So God has this attribute about him where he can be three and he can be one at the same time. It's not really all that complicated. But then again, it really is complicated. It may sound kind of easy, but it's not. And when I say that, what I'm talking about is we need a, a, we need a miracle in our understanding to really grasp the purpose of the Trinity and, and what that means to us and how that should influence our lives and, and how community actually began in heaven before a single creature was created. And that's going to take a revelation. God said, you can't live by information, but you can live by revelation. And all of us need constantly to have our eyes open and say, Lord, help open my eyes and, and help me to understand. And, and so what I want to do is explore this idea of how three in one really sets a perfect example for how we can become one. He's put it in our hearts. We have this longing, this desire, saved and unsaved alike. But how do you get there? How, how does God stay there? Perfect, absolute unity. Do you remember the song? Where seldom is heard a discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day. It's like that in heaven all the time. Not a discouraging word. There's never any confusion among the three persons of the Godhead. So we're going to talk about things like this. For instance, the three members have different roles. What their assignment is, their, their chosen and self-given assignment are all three different. For instance, the father is the designer and the planner. He was the one that spoke creation into existence. He's the one who set the course of history and kind of put his plans in place, not only for mankind, but also for the Son and for the Holy Spirit. That's not the same role as the Son. The role of the Son is to be a redeemer, the intercessor, the head of the church. That's not the role of the Father. He sent the Son to become our redeemer, our intercessor and head of the church. And then he gave an assignment to the Holy Spirit, or I, I should say it was self-created. God himself always was this. He wasn't doing roles. He is God, and he is these things. It's kind of tough to comprehend. But the Holy Spirit's role is to be our helper, our generator of new life. He breathes life into dead souls and the empowerer to accomplish the will of God. Okay, so they're, they're all doing different things, 
in space and time, but they're all in agreement. They never conflict and go, hey, that's my job, man. Hey, you know, I thought we joined the union. That's not your job. That's my job. And we'll explore how all three persons of the Godhead had different responsibilities. Each one knows his part, his responsibility in the mission. Each member of the Trinity understands and cooperates with the responsibilities of the others and of the triune community. They, they, they see it. They understand it. They know there doesn't need to be crossover because everybody's got perfect understanding of what the other's roles are. And that's all interesting, okay? That's kind of theoretical. And yeah, sure, you can see that in, in Scripture. The Father is always active here. Son is always active here. Spirit's always active here. But that doesn't necessarily create unity. It creates understanding. We have divisible lines between our assignments and our roles and responsibilities. But here's the key. All three are submitted to one another. All three understand. All three are submitted to one another. They know who submits to whom and when and why. And this is where, when you hear this, and we'll talk for a few weeks about these things, each one of them. When you begin to think about submitting to one another after you understand, here's your role, here's my role, here's your responsibility, here's my responsibility. Now if we learn to appreciate, acknowledge, and submit to one another, then we begin to say, oh, we don't need to cross over. Or I don't need to tap my foot that you're not doing your job, assuming you're seeking the Lord and doing your job and I'm doing mine. And the picture you get in the Godhead is there's, there's this music and this dance going on. So that all three are accomplishing a mission. God has a purpose and a mission in the earth. And he gave that to Adam and Eve when he said, you will rule over all creation. And you're going to maintain it and manage it. That's, that's an assignment and a job. And when Adam and Eve worked in perfect unity and harmony, roles and responsibilities, and submitted one to another, man, it was heaven. It was called the Garden of Eden. So if we can take some of these things and begin to kind of put them into use a little bit more deeply than maybe we have in the past where we begin to really accept our roles in the church, accept our roles in our family, define them well, know them well, memorize them, eat, sleep, and drink them. And then along with those roles, accept the responsibility that goes with it. You know, there are a lot of people who love the role of being dad but they hate the responsibility of being dad. A lot of women who love the role of being the mom, but really don't like being the wife. If we would accept our God-given roles and then take the responsibility and learn to balance those together and stay responsible and kind of parallel in tandem energy and then submit to one another as we honor and accept and even applaud the gifts and the goals and the talents and the responsibilities of one another, then you can see gears begin to mesh, yeah? Now, there's always going to be a problem when someone like me comes along who thinks they know it all and they can do it all. It creates problems. It creates brokenness, disharmony, disunity. I've had to personally work really hard at finding my boundaries and my limitations, my space, my time, my roles and responsibility. And so one of the things we'll look at in the next few weeks is, is how, do you, how do you figure yours out? And then what does it mean to submit one to another? Because when we do all three of these things, you know what you have? You have genuine love for one another. That's what love looks like. 
It's not all just squishy and warm and huggy feely. And um, it's, not, it's not a feeling. It's, it's really an operational word where we're beginning to make decisions. We're choosing to allow others to be themselves and also learning, fighting hard to become who God made us to be. And then put our energies together and begin discovering our assignment. One of the exciting things that uh, we've been doing around here at the beginning of the year, it might have been February. Yeah, it was during our annual finance meeting. Um, we introduced a few new staff members. They're all working about five hours a week, really small jobs, so uh, manageable for our budget and those kind of things. But I'll tell you, the amount of talent we've just gathered on staff here on a, on a weekly basis is phenomenal. And I was just telling Pam yesterday, I was watching the uh, Easter service on the internet, and I was so in love with my church. I said, I love you guys. You guys are the best. I can't believe, this is us? Wow, it's just amazing. And, and I said, honey, you know what the best part is? I'm not doing any of it. All I do is preach. These guys have so much talent, and look, they're taking us to the moon and back. So I've tasted and seen how good it can get if we can all continue, not begin, but continue to discover our responsibilities, our roles, submit one to another, and then really begin firing on all cylinders. Short and sweet. I have about six sermons ready for you, and I'm really excited about looking into it. And again, this mystery of the Trinity. Now, there are actually about six other qualities about the Trinity that I want to explore. Uh, but what I'd like to do is just have you begin praying again and say, Lord, uh, do I know what my role is? Have I accepted it in life? Do I know what my responsibilities are? Have I taken those on? And have I learned to submit myself to those around me so that we can actually honor and help one another to excel? That's something we can constantly be reminded of, especially in an average household. Yeah? Yeah. Learning how to work with husband and wife or kids and grandkids and those kind of things. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have created us to be better together. We thank you, Lord God, that you are not only one who commands and instructs, but you demonstrate what it is to walk in unity. We thank you for that, Father. And we know, Lord God, that um, as these final days of history begin closing in on us, that the pressures that could divide us will mount. Opposition will increase. We know our spiritual battle will not get smaller. It'll grow in intensity. So, Father, now more than ever, we need to continue learning how to be one people who worship one God. So, Lord, show us our, our specific assignments practical steps we can take to walk in that kind of unity. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, may God bless you. I always say whenever we're meeting with a group, either staff or lunch or council members, whenever there's somebody late you start praying, I always say, hey, watch, when we're done praying, God will multiply us. And sure enough, it happened again. So.